I'm Rip Esselstyn, and you're listening to the Plan Strong Podcast. My guest today is a West Point grad and proudly served in the U.S. Army as a family medicine doctor, flight surgeon, and dive medical officer. These days, he serves you with vegan primary care, his plant-based telehealth practice. Let's meet Dr. Scott Harrington right after this. I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres, is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiber Fueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant You, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. We rightfully hold doctors in high esteem, but of course, they're just like us. My guest today, Dr. Scott Harrington, has a journey to plant-based nutrition that may sound familiar to many of you. As a practicing physician and U.S. Army family medicine doctor, Scott was doing what most doctors do, seeing as many patients as possible and writing prescriptions. As a result, he was noticing his own physical and mental health declining until, until he watched Forks Over Knives on an airplane at the recommendation of a military colleague. As he says today, by the time the plane landed, he knew he was a changed man. In 2020, he started his own telehealth practice called Vegan Primary Care, where he works with patients in 22 states to improve chronic illness and thrive on a whole food, plant-based diet. I also asked for his recommendations on all of your common health questions like calcium intake, fiber, vitamin D, and what does it really take to build strong bones? His energy, his passion are palpable, and I can't wait for you to meet Dr. Scott Harrington. Hey, Dr. Scott Harrington, welcome to the Plan Strong Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, Rip, thank you so much. I'm super honored to be here. Yeah. 
Now, Scott, where am I talking to you from? Where are you? I am in beautiful Palm Harbor, Florida. It's around the Tampa area, Clearwater area. Wow. Uh, so you like the sunshine? Yes, yes. So I, I grew up in uh, Daytona Beach, uh, Florida, but my wife grew up on this side, this coast of Florida. And uh, when I got out of the military, she won out, you know, because uh, she's got a big family over here and it's it's great. We have a big, wonderful family over here. Daytona Beach. I... I used to date a woman uh, when I was in college whose family was from Daytona Beach, and that was just a party. It's a party spot, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, it was it, it was interesting because my dad had a business on the beach where we would rent floats and chairs and umbrellas and things, and it was always a big spring break hub, and oh. you know, and uh, you could drive on the beach. And so, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was always this thing where people would, you know, alter their cars. And it was like, we want to show them off on Daytona Beach. And it was, it was there was MTV down there. And it was always it was always a party location. And they do um, they do the races there and bike week and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, this was in the in the mid to late 80s when I was when I was there dating this particular woman. And I just remember leaving going, this place is insane. <laughs> um, How did anybody well, so, get anything done around here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, so Scott, what? Uh, tell me just a little bit about your family growing up. Did you have brothers, sisters? Um, what did your parents do? Give me a little background. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, we're a small family, mom and dad and one sister. Uh, sister is seven years younger than me. She's now a dermatology PA. So we've got kind of healthcare in the family. My parents weren't into healthcare. Um, mom's a, an artist and my dad, uh, he, he was in the Navy for a little bit and he was a welder. And then we had this beach business. Uh, he grew up on the beach. So we were always kind of a beach family. I grew up surfing and, uh, just, I was a swimmer in high school, that kind of thing. And, um, my mom basically got me excited about medicine because she was always kind of looking for the best diet, the latest, you know, and weight losses as people do. And uh, I mean, it's interesting because she had a copy of the starch solution a long time ago. Oh. Uh, but, you know, it, it's interesting how, you know, you don't let uh, things sink in until, you know, you hit a certain point in your life when uh, all of a sudden the the message comes through. So. Now, so the starch solution, that was a John McDougall book, but that, that actually came out, I think in 2000 and maybe 12, 13. So maybe it was McDougall's medicine you're talking about that John wrote like in the seventies. You're it's probably was. Yeah, you're right. If, if that's yeah. the timing of it, it was, it was a McDougall book. Definitely. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. he looks very young and he's like holding all the vegetables or something, I think on the front. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, might have been the McDougal's solution or McDougal's medicine, but John yeah. was such an incredible pioneer. Truly, oh my god, he's been saying the same thing for like you know forever, and you got to you yes. got to hand it to him for that, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I'm <laughs> sure that we'll uh, we'll we'll bring up John McDougal again and uh, over the course of this podcast. Now, so Scott, what was it that inspired you to go into medicine? My, my grandmother, you know, she was getting older and she was always, she was just always, 
yeah, my grandson, he's going to go into medicine. He's going to take care of me. And so that was just like, you know, a microchip implanted in my brain where I was, I was just going to be a doctor. That's, that was just what I was going to do. And, um, I, I went into the army that, to pay for college. You know, I went, I was at West Point for undergrad. And then I went uh, through the HBSP program through medical school through the army. I'm, I'm still technically, I'm still reserve army uh, medical corps. So I still get to serve my country and uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's great to keep my foot in the army as well. Well, you're, yeah, you're a colonel in the, uh, in the U S army reserves, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, so in the U.S. Army, you were a uh, you were a medical doctor. Were you also a, a flight surgeon? Is that right? Yes, yeah. So uh, there's a great job in the military uh, called flight surgeon, where you work with pilots and you fly a little bit. They in the army they don't teach you to fly. So but I, I've heard rumor that in the in the navy you actually get to become a pilot as well. Uh, but uh, in the mm-hmm. army you uh, sit next to the pilots and you get to know them, you live in their environment. And uh, so I worked closely with pilots and with parachutists and would do uh, know all about flight physiology. And um, it, it's a big part of, of flight safety is making sure that you get basically grounded if you're, if you're sick with something that could alter your, um, your ability to fly. So that, that was uh, one of the coolest jobs in the army for sure. I I imagine it would have been, and then you were also a dive uh, a dive medical officer. What was that like? Right, right. I got very lucky uh, when I was at West Point. I got a chance to do combat divers qualification course, which is uh, you know I'm not special forces, but it was a special forces course, and we learn how to do um, navigate underwater and 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 various skills, and so. Once I became a physician, then I could, then I um, use that course and then I became a um, dive medical officer. So that's, that's key for helping, you know, getting people set up for scuba jobs, underwater jobs and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, I never really did any kind of crazy underwater missions or something, James Bond missions or anything like that. So, uh, but it, it was a lot of really cool training. Well, I got, I mean, Flight surgeon, dive medical officer, medical or family medical doctor. That's that's all sounds great. And you also spent two years in Afghanistan. Uh, what was that experience like? It was it was it was I mean, it was an amazing experience working with so many different types of people, different medical professionals. It was it was great to be a big part of a large team where you're really counting on people and uh you, uh, we ran into situations that were just, you know, hair raising situations and getting to help um, the Afghan people. That was a big part of it. Uh, so medical outreach, people would come to the base and they would have severe medical problems and we would help them. And, and, um, and then also, of course, working with um, injured soldiers. And it was, I mean, it, it changed my life. It, 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 um, it's, it's, uh, we could spend the whole time talking about it. I'm sure. I mean, there's, there's lots of, um, lots of, uh, experiences and it helped me actually as a physician too, to, to see kind of, um, well, to, to work, uh, in areas where you didn't have all the resources. So you have to kind of be creative and, and use your medical resources, the, um, uh, get them to go the, the farthest, so to speak. And also seeing, um, 
areas like like in Afghanistan, for instance, they don't have rabies vaccination program in many areas of of Afghanistan. So I saw patients with rabies, and and uh, so I just can't even. So were you in a, a hospital setting? Were you in a tent? What what was what were the facilities yeah, like? There was about fifteen months where I was in a tent, basically, uh, and we but working with the surgical team, and it was a, a small group, kind of. Like you can imagine, almost like MASH, you know, like a small, yeah. well, MASH is kind of more mobile hospital, but a much smaller unit and uh, just making do with what we had and uh, just trying to be as close to the troops as possible. So if people got injured, we'd be right there available for them. So it was a great experience and, uh, and, and just get, it was a real honor to serve working with the soldiers and, and all the medical team. It was, uh, it was a real honor. And were you in the same location for two years or did you move around at all? No, in my, in my second year, it was in, I was in a bigger base. I was a higher rank. And then I was in charge of, you know, kind of where people, you know, using our skills and the resources from our staff to the best of their ability. So where you're trying to find who will be best in a certain location, depending on the risks or, you know, operations and that kind of thing. I was, so yeah, I was a um, brigade surgeon on the second the second one year deployment, and I was it's kind of like all the king's horses, all the king's men. You know, you're you're one of the group, and it was one of the neatest times of my life because I was a part of this big organization, and everybody's there in a room, everybody's an expert, and you know, advising the commander, and it just seeing the moving parts of a big organization like that. It was I felt mm-hmm. like man we could be curing cancer or something if we could just turn all these uh, smart heads in one direction. It was amazing what you could do with, you know, all those people at, uh, at your disposal, so to speak. Yeah. And how many of those smart heads do you think are uh, whole food plant-based these days? Well, you know, I'm doing my best to, uh, to convert folks, you know, in the army, you know, you can only get so far, uh, but, uh, you know, cause I don't know, everyone seems to be kind of, um, uh, focused on getting their protein and that kind of thing. You know, honestly, it was a special forces soldier that, that, uh, that kind of turned me on to plant-based diet, you know, well, my, uh, it, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I, yeah, no. In doing my homework, I, I read that it was a special forces. Um, I don't know if it was a friend or not, but suggested you watch forks over knives. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was my right-hand man at the time. Uh, he was a special forces PA. He was like, I, I had tried to lose some weight. You know, I was 35. I had uh, sort of gained one or two pounds a year and it, it, I needed to, I needed to lose weight, get my run time down. And, and uh, I had tried to go portion control, you know, and yeah. it, it just doesn't work. <laughs> portion control does not work. So he's like, Hey, you should check out this, uh, this movie forks over knives and the plant-based diet. And so, my, my story is I was uh, traveling somewhere and I watched it on the plane. And by the time it landed, I was, I was vegan. That was it. I was convinced. Yeah. <laughs> so I made well, this kind of overnight shift because I was in sort of a bad place where uh, I knew there was something wrong. And, mm. uh, and then being, then seeing like seeing the light basically. Well, that to me is, it says a lot to me about your personality that you're open-minded enough to see something like the documentary forks over knives and then let me ask you this so 
this was 2012. You you graduated from um, the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2003. So yes. you've been out there for for a while practicing medicine. What was it? Can you remember what was it about that movie that was so pivotal in you basically going whole food plant based? Well, okay. So for one, it was, it was served to me kind of on a silver platter. Uh, so the fact that, uh, my friend here is, is telling me about the, the, the movie and the person who told him was one of the smartest people that he knew in the army. And we both knew the same person who was, uh, I considered one of the smartest people in the army that I had met at that time. Who was a, uh, internal medicine doctor. I was just yeah. so impressed with this guy. And they're like, he says it's 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 evidence based and it's it it makes sense, and so I had sort of my uh, defenses off, you know. I was like, and right. I had come from this dark place. So from from the from the get go, I'm like looking for a right answer, looking for a message, and sort of in in the right place, ready ready to hear it, ready to make a change. And at that point, I had never gotten anybody off of any medications. And here I am, a family doctor. And so this is just like hitting on all the points that were really salient to me uh, that one, you know, I, I became a doctor to help people. And right now it doesn't feel like I'm helping people. It feels like I'm just prescribing yeah. more pills and and this kind of thing. It gave me hope. It gave me hope like, okay, well, if I do this diet and I'm going to see if it works, I, I don't tell, I don't do anything. I don't tell my patients to do something that I wouldn't do. So mm -hmm. I knew right away that if I want to see if this works, I got to go all the way. And that way it, it'll be something I can tell my patients. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's a, yeah. No, that's, yeah, a beautiful, yeah. that's a beautiful concept. So what was the dark place you were in? Meaning what the standard American diet? Was that the dark place you were in? No, no. The dark place I was in was the fact that I had tried to lose weight. And at the oh, time gotcha. I was having to tell all my patients, look, you've got to lose weight you know, you've got metabolic syndrome, you've got fatty liver disease, you're, you know, it's going to help your blood pressure and all these things. And, um, and then when I decided to lose weight and take my own advice, you know, eat less and move more that, uh, I basically failed. And, uh, it felt like, you know, I had to lose 15 or 20 pounds. It was like a, a mountain I could never climb. You know, it was a bridge too far. Cause I was, I felt like with a portion control, you know, diet, just eating smaller standard American diet meals and exercising a lot. I felt hungry all the time. And, um, and basically I, I failed, I failed to lose weight. So that was kind of the dark place I was in. I felt like, oh my gosh, my patients are, they're not going to be able to lose weight and they're just going to need to have like a gastric bypass when they're, you know, a hundred pounds overweight or something. Like it, it felt like this was key to my, um, to my career. And, and, uh, so I was having an existential crisis kind of thing. Got it. Got it. Well, you're right. I mean, the current formula that everybody, uh, or paradigm that we need to eat less, move more. It's a, uh, it's a formula that, <laughs> that doesn't work and it's obviously not sustainable. Um, you know, some people lose weight short term. So, so glad that you, uh, that you found this. Let me, let me ask you this, Scott. Because I'm sure you get asked this all the time, and and I'd love to get some clarity. So why did you go? Why did you become a DO and not an MD? And what are the advantages, disadvantages to you know a DO versus an MD, if there are any? Do you have the same medical school uh, education? All that jazz. 
Yeah. Okay. Great question. Great question. Yeah. So I'm an osteopathic doctor. And uh, in the United States, you can go to allopathic school, MD school, or you could go to osteopathic medical school. And, uh, you, you know, honestly, when you're, when you're trying to become a physician, it's like, it's like where, where you can get into, wherever, wherever you get into. And I, I was accepted to an osteopathic school and I was super, super glad to be able to get in um, because, you know, it's, it's difficult. There's so much competition. Mm. Uh, so, and I was lucky. I was lucky because an osteopathic school, uh, there's, you know, a mind, body, spirit focused. Uh, there's a, the idea of holistic medicine is kind of baked in. Uh, because uh, the father of osteopathic medicine, Andrew Taylor, still his family had been basically killed by various toxic compounds like mercury compounds and medicines that at the time were being used. And so this um, this MD, Andrew Taylor, still decided that he was going to not use any medications and that he was going to do um, manipulation and trying to let the body heal itself. So. Uh, I mean, basically what we think of as kind of like chiropractic uh, type manipulations, but, you know, osteopathics don't like, <laughs> osteopathic doctors don't like you calling it uh, yeah. a chiropractic manipulation. But uh, with osteopathic manipulation, you uh, basically, um, you help the body heal itself by if there's areas that are um, having uh, osteopathic dysfunction or like ropiness along the back. You can do manipulations and, and free these up and it makes people feel better and it helps getting better blood flow and lymphatic flow. And so and this was a big, uh, as, this was a major aspect of uh, the philosophies of osteopathic medicine for years and years and years. However, then antibiotics came out and mm -hmm. some of the osteopathic doctors were like, hey, this is, this is really good. Antibiotics help people. And... Another sort of milestone in osteopathic medicine was during the Vietnam War, where people were getting drafted. And the MDs were like, hey, you know, these osteopathic doctors claim to be doctors and they're, they're not getting drafted. So basically, once they drafted uh, osteopathic doctors, they had to, uh, federal government had to standardize kind of the medical, um, the medical education system. And so... Now in both MD schools and DO schools, you have two years of books, book training and two years of medical rotations where you shadow doctors. And, and so it's standardized. In osteopathic school, you still learn how to do osteopathic manipulation, um, but it's also very similar um, MD education, uh, but it kind of keeps this holistic philosophy and trying to mm -hmm. avoid a bunch of unnecessary medications. And you know, this was fertile ground for me because now I'm a board certified lifestyle medicine doctor and it just, it's, it's fertile ground. It just aligns perfectly with the mm -hmm. osteopathic principles of mm -hmm. uh, lifestyle medicine. So, yeah. And so going through your medical, your medical school or osteopathic school, did you have a cadaver? Is that something that you guys have or not? Yes. Yeah. So uh, just like in MD school, Anatomy is one of the first courses that you undergo. So, yep, it, we so uh, anatomy class and um, you know yeah. going through it and it's that's always a a, a big uh, a big slap in the face or you know it's a, it's like oh my gosh you know but uh, you get used to it. That's the kind of the weird thing you know. Mm -hmm. Then you go to anatomy class and then you're hungry and you go to lunch. This is kind of kind of creepy. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Scott, uh, thank you. Thank you for that explaining the difference there in the, in the background. And it seems like um, with your background and being raised by somebody, your mother who was an artist, uh, it seems like maybe this is more dovetails more with kind of your upbringing and the whole mind, body, spirit um, kind of philosophy that is part of being an osteopathic physician. Yeah, you know, I mean, my grandma giving me, you know, wanted me to take care of yeah. her, uh, kind of putting that into, and just that I'm always going to be a physician. So I've all, always had that kind of in the back of my mind. And I, I really lucked out getting into osteopathic medical school um, because, you know, one, the uh, the manipulation, two, the, the sort of focus on the body healing itself. Uh, when, when I have patients, I'm looking for ways that what can they do with their lifestyle that, that so we don't have to give somebody a medication that's potentially toxic. Now, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't say that I'm against medication. I can still prescribe all the pills, but the goal is to avoid a bunch of pills of, uh, that cause more problems sometimes than they're worth. So, yeah, yeah. Now, so you were a physician. Um, where were you practicing medicine before you decided to take this leap of faith and open up your own practice? So, uh, yeah, so a lot of people ask me, how did I get so many licenses? Uh, <laughs> after, I, after I got out of the military, uh, active duty, and, and went to reserves, I went back to uh, my wife's hometown, and I started to work for a local, local hospital, Tampa General. And, uh, and I was telling people about the plant-based diet, and my hair was on fire. And uh, it was actually, it was, it was kind of frustrating to the other doctors are like, Scott, you're spending so much time talking about diet, you know, you got to stop that. And, uh, and that just, I was like, what, this is crazy. I got to get out of here. This is, this is not what, uh, that's not what I want. You know, I want my patients to know all about it. And uh, so then I decided, you know what? I'm working more now than I was in the military. So I decided to work from home. So I got a job with a company called American Well, Amwell. And they had me on staff. And as a staff member with uh, American Well, they got me uh, licensed in lots of different states. So all the states west of the Mississippi. So, um, and then I, I worked for them for several years uh, as, a, as a staff physician for telemedicine. Mm-hmm. And this was great because I got to see my family and be close to them, especially coming off of, uh, you know, 12 years in active duty, long deployments and this kind of, it was really good. It was, it was great. But you started doing telemedicine, but what, what year was that, that you started doing it with, uh, with Amerawa? So, uh, maybe 2000, late, late 2017, something like that. Okay. So, cause, okay. So telemedicine was just kind of coming into being vogue then kind of a new thing. Yeah. So I got, I got, I kind of got lucky there. Uh, so, yeah. but, but honestly it was the model of it was just people calling in for colds and, you know, uh, I mean, it, it was great to help people, you know, people calling in for colds and UTIs and, and things, and I could reach out to them and, and through this platform and it was really good, but, um, it started to become kind of the same thing over and over again. So maybe I would see, 40 colds or 50 colds, you know, people, people complain about colds and everybody kind of wants antibiotics. And I'm I'm like, I don't recommend antibiotics for viral illnesses. And so it just, it started to become ridiculous, you know, that I knew I needed to kind of move on because I'm armed and dangerous with this uh, plant-based diet that I just want to, you know, sing it from the, 
Yeah, I just want I'm going to shout it from the mountaintops, you know. And uh, you know, I would always be working it in. You know, they had a cold. I'm like, but have you considered the plant based diet? You know, they stub their toe, but have you considered the plant based diet? You know, and uh, right. and so I'm like, I just need to start my own business. And uh, and so that's that's um, after the pandemic hit, and people were more willing to utilize yeah. telemedicine. I thought, hey, now's my chance. I'll start my own business. And it just really worked out because um, I was worried, honestly, I was worried about starting vegan primary care, just opening up my shingle locally, uh, because I was kind of worried that there wouldn't be enough uh, interest in, in, in it's sort of a plant-based practice. And so I was able thinking I could just open this up to, you know, nationwide kind of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine a lot of, a lot of thought, went into you opening up your own business and that must have been pretty darn risky. When did you exactly did you open vegan primary care? Yes, uh, October 2020. So it was during the pandemic and uh and yeah, that was a little bit oh my gosh, you're going to start your own business during a pandemic? Are you crazy? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I I knew it was time. I knew that there was more more interest in telemedicine, more acceptance and, uh, and so I'm really glad I did because now I'm still working from home and I get to help, I get to reach out to the vegan plant-based community. And, uh, I have, I have patients who's, who are vegan or plant-based. I have, I have families who, you know, maybe they're worried that my, my child wants to go plant-based and I don't know if it's a good idea. Um, I have people who are just starting. I have, I have patients who are, have been plant-based for years and years, you know, longer than I have. And, uh, and just, need a doctor. And, uh, mm, yeah. many people sort of said, are you sure you shouldn't be like smokers and drinkers primary care because you're not going to have any patients because vegans are not going <laughs> to need very much care, you know? So, um, you know, that, it, that can't actually be a problem because I, uh, you know, I might see someone once a year or once every other year because they're so healthy. Yeah. Yeah. They're not sick enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, how did you land on the name vegan primary care as opposed to I don't know, plant-based or, you know, plant leaning or whatever. Well, I, I, I think that, uh, vegan primary care one, you know, I started for health. I started the plant-based diet for health, but then over time, you know, it's like, do I really like harming animals? No, I don't like harming animals. And the, the footprint that the plant-based diet has is much, much less than the footprint for animal food and, Know, burning down the rainforest to make grassland for cattle and this kind of thing. And so er, I started to become vegan. I started to become vegan. So all immorally and uh, everything sort of lined up. And, and I just thought to myself, plant-based, no, I'm vegan. And so I'm vegan. So I'm going to create vegan primary care. And, you know, it's like, I don't care who knows about it. Vegan primary right. care. <laughs> that kind of thing. I, I just oh, felt yeah. I felt like it, it was uh, supporting a, a, a group, uh, maybe a smaller niche, I guess you could say. But uh, it, it that's uh, that's where I fell. Now, fantastic, and and with your um, with your telemedicine, you're licensed in about what 24, 26 states to see patients. Is that right? Yes, yes. It, it's changing all the time. It's changing. It's right now, it's about twenty two. Um, okay. And, and so, yeah, I had started off with more, but it, it becomes kind of, you know, do you hold on to a license for years and years if you don't have any patients? And, and so, 
you know, it's been kind of, if I don't have any patients there for years and years, I've kind of let some of them go. But uh, honestly, you know, around the coast, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, you know, this kind of thing is, uh, is kind of, I'll, those, those licenses will never go away. Cause you know, I have a lot more patients uh, from yeah. those, uh, for the States. So I used to have a license like in New York, but uh, like when I was getting malpractice, uh, if I included New York, it would be like, two or three times more expensive. So that's why I don't have New York. I had to let my license go. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, for anybody who's interested in seeing all the States that you, um, that you're licensed in, you can just go to veganprimarycare.com and you've got a list of all those. Yeah, absolutely. So Scott, I would love to ask you some, just some general questions that I'm sure our listeners would love to hear the answers to. Um, so if you're ready, I'm going to just fire away. Let's do it. All right. So talk to me for a sec about building strong bones. I know that, you know, uh, osteopenia or osteoporosis is kind of running rampant in this country. What's the reason for that? Is it a lack of calcium? What exactly is the, um, would you say, in your opinion, is going on here? Well, sedentary lifestyle is probably one of the biggest things uh, that that I worry about, Um I guess you assume in sort of a natural environment, we'd always be moving around and we'd be carrying things. We wouldn't be sedentary for sure. Uh, so, but uh, there are some big risk factors for vegans and plant-based folks is the fact that uh, having lower body mass index, uh, you're going to have less uh, mm. pressure on the bones and less um, mineralization requirement for, for the bones. Uh, and so uh, bones are a use it or lose it phenomenon. So you're going to want to do weightlifting activities. Uh, and for, for people who are trying to basically reverse uh, a, a diagnosis of osteopenia, uh, so, so, so moderate bone density loss or osteoporosis, severe bone density loss, uh, you need to lift heavy, lift heavy. Uh, and I recommend that you get a trainer to kind of to kind of help you out. You start off light and you start off uh, getting your form down and then starting, you know, slowly progressive. However, the mineral density aspect is just one aspect of uh, people, people um, getting injured and having fractures related to osteoporosis. The biggest thing is uh, flexibility and, uh, you know, balance, proprioception, and so uh, when, when studied, when studied on falls prevention and fracture prevention, this has a much more, it has a larger effect than straight up weightlifting itself. Uh, so yeah, I use the, use a three-legged stool scenario where you, you, you know, used to be, you would tell patients, you know, calcium, vitamin D and exercise, you know, but I kind of switch it around where it's exercise, vitamin D and then calcium Calcium has uh, some negative press because it causes, if you're taking high dose of calcium supplementation, it can actually increase your clotting risk and people have higher heart attack rates and stroke rates with high dose calcium. So I've stopped recommending calcium as a, what I tell people to do is use a food logging app. I recommend chronometer mm -hmm. and to, to go on chronometer and, and put in the food they're eating uh, make sure they're getting, you know, uh, a good green routine, make sure they're getting their greens and their beans and to uh, track their calcium and with the goal of 750 milligrams of calcium by the diet. 
that's that's what I've been telling people to do. Right. And how how difficult or easy is that to get 750 um, milligrams? You actually have to, you know, make sure that I mean, without greens, without greens and beans, it, it can be tough. It can be tough. So if someone is not even getting that, then then I would suggest maybe a small dose of calcium, like 250. But I mean, you have to take it with food. Uh, you don't want to take it on an empty stomach because that that um, puts you at uh, more risk for the clotting aspect of yeah. calcium. So um, okay, yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned the uh, the three legged stool. You started with exercise. You said you've reversed it. Exercise, vitamin D, and calcium. What's your recommendation with vitamin D? Well, yeah. So vitamin D, you could technically get it from just getting in the sun, um, 20, 30 minutes. So, uh, you know, during Stop. the day, we uh, don't all, we don't all live in Florida, my man. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, so that's a good point. But, um, so for that reason, I recommend getting about 2000 international units of vitamin D. And, uh, and, and so I am pretty paranoid about the sun myself because I'm so fair skinned and, you know, you start to get little lumps or bumps. And my sister is a dermatology PA. So every time I see her, she comes over and she checks me out. And, uh, uh, you know, luckily I'm hanging in there, but uh, my dad's, (laughs) my dad's had melanoma. He's been out in the, you know, we, we had that business on the beach. And so I, I, I get my vitamin D through, uh, 2000 international units of vitamin D. Right. Okay. So, so you're supplementing on a daily basis. Yes. Yes. And you got to do it to the, I mean, I recommend people getting through the vegan, vegan version. Um, mm-hmm. I think that vitamin D may be through sheep's wool lanolin, believe it or not. I believe there's some, that's right. You know, people are like sheep's grease. That's gross. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, what it's so interesting to me with vitamin D because you know one month I'm hearing you know yes supplementation is the way to go you do not want to be low in vitamin D and then I'm hearing well the jury's still out and you know there's really no such thing as a deficiency unless you're below uh, ten so I, you know it's 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 interesting for me because I'm still trying to wrap my brain around what to do with D what in fact to do. Right, right. So, yeah, the, this whole thing is is sort of a controversy regarding vitamin D and omega three. Kind of those are it's kind of yeah. controversy. That's because observational studies show benefit where people who have higher vitamin D levels in the blood tend to have you know better immunity and uh, you know issues with you know better you know outcomes with in regards to osteoporosis and things like this. But then when they try to do uh, a randomized double blind controlled study versus placebo, you don't, I mean, it's even shown to, I I believe against placebo, not help with fracture risk, which Mm -hmm. that was a big one that came out, you know, about a year ago, I think. And so, yes, there's some stink on vitamin D for sure. There definitely is, you know, and it it kind of leaves you like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Um, However, I just, I don't want to be deficient. I don't want to be deficient. And so I'm sort of kind of meeting in the middle so to speak. And I don't want my patients to be deficient in case that is an issue. Uh, yeah. So you can test sort of vitamin D and sort of the sort of opposite hormone for vitamin D, which is parathyroid hormone. So mm. if your vitamin D is low and your calcium absorption is low, 
the uh, body has to produce more parathyroid hormone, which tells the bones to release some of the calcium. So that is, there's not a very good way to test your body's calcium. So when you test, when you test calcium, the body, it's always going to be basically perfect when you test your blood, your blood levels. And so, but one of the things you can do is test parathyroid hormone. And if your parathyroid hormone is, is high, there's a concern that there's a pressure for the body to be releasing calcium from the bones. And so I mean, that, that's sort of another sort of way to kind of a, a, a roundabout way to sort of analyze in patients. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is your definition of somebody being low or deficient in vitamin D? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot. I think it's something like, you know, 16 to 18 or something. I have to have to look at the exact number, but that, yeah. that's, that's clearly deficient. That's, that's clearly deficient. Then there's insufficiency, which I believe is under 30. And, yeah. um, so I want my patients to be over 30 over, uh, you know, out of insufficiency range, yeah. but then, uh, you know, the, so then the debate is like, well, is 40 better than 30 is 50 better than, you know, and then how, how high do you go? I've heard some people say 75. But I, my assumption is that the, the largest benefit is just being out of the insufficient into the normal range. And that's yeah, what, right. um, yeah, that's right. where I tell people basically to stop. So one more thing, comment, and then we're going to move on from vitamin D. But so, <laughs> so, so in your opinion, it, you think that the, it's a little bit better idea to supplement and be kind of in a range above 30, as opposed to be below, let's say 20 to be lower or deficient and any potential negative health consequences that, that come from that. Right. Right. Yeah. Ba basically, uh, you know, because this is sort of, there's areas, this is a kind of area of debate, I guess, uh, that my goal is just for my patients not to be deficient and, or, or insufficient. And, uh, and so that kind of factor hopefully is taken out of, of, um, of, of the health, uh, any kind of issues with it. I mean, everybody comes to me, they're concerned, they're deficient in something, you know, it's, it's, uh, cause yeah. what, what does sort of everybody come at you with when you're on the vegan diet? Oh my God, you're going to be deficient <laughs> in this and deficient uh, yeah. in that. And so people come to me and, you know, I have to be like, you're normal. You're okay. You're, you're doing great. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, it's as a family doctor, you spend so much time trying to, uh, basically help people know what's normal. And, uh, yeah. and, and so ruling out deficiency is, is, is a big thing that people want basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is the best way <laughs> to not be deficient in all these things is to be on a whole food plant-based diet, right? It's like absolutely the gold standard. That's the, the irony here is <laughs> oh my God, you're going to be deficient in all these things. It's like, well, really, <laughs> um, so we've talked about, you talked about calcium and how really it's important that you really kind of are bringing home the, the beans and the greens. Um, in relation to greens, what do you have to say about ox, uh, oxalates and um, eating too many ice, uh, oxalates that are in certain green leafies like spinach or Swiss chard, for example? Yeah, so... Uh, the oxalate, the oxalate issue. So beets, Swiss chard and beet greens or beet greens, Swiss chard. And what's the other spinach. one? And spinach. 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 Yeah. yeah. So uh, spinach is kind of a problem because it's, 
people find that spinach is pretty palatable and it's pretty common one. And so people can kind of overeat spinach in theory because of the oxalates. And so the concept is calcium oxalate stones are the most prominent kidney stone that happens. And uh, and so uh, the concern is maybe with these oxalates, you're going to have a higher rates of kidney stones. And there are case reports. So, uh, but the real question is like, are we overblowing this issue with the oxalates? And I think we are to some extent. Uh, so uh, I, I will mention it to people, especially if they've had kidney stones in the past. Yeah. Um, I don't spend a lot of time talking about it in patients who haven't had uh, kidney stones in the past. But uh, yeah, if they have, I'll say, you know, maybe no more than like a cup or two of any of these greens, you know, once a week. Uh, but I try to, you know, talking to them about kale and romaine and napa cabbage and arugula and 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 pushing all the other greens that uh, to expand their palate. That, that's basically what I'm, I'm trying to get people to do. But I, I do think that this is kind of an overblown theoretical risk because, uh, you know, oxalates are, are high in other foods, too, I believe, like in beans and certain foods, maybe nuts and stuff that uh, that it's not just the greens, you yeah. know. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anybody who's had a kidney stone will, you know, be fearful about it and they'll be working. They they're trying to avoid it at all costs, but really it's trying to eat a low animal protein diet and avoid, you know, salt and, and, and this kind of thing and alcohol stuff. But um, yeah, you know, I can get my patients, but some of my patients who uh, eat a high protein diet who are into like weightlifting, I've only had uh two patients who have had kidney stones who are plant-based and they were both sort of uh, still onto this thing about having to eat a lot of protein and drinking protein powder and, yeah. and this kind of thing. So, you know, being on a low protein diet, uh, you know, is a low renal acid load diet um, will uh, help you avoid kidney stones. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a kidney stone? No, I've never had a kidney stone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, knock on wood. Neither have oh, yeah. I. Knock on wood. I, I've talked to some friends that have said, <laughs> male friends that have said it's worse than childbirth, and it's like, oh, how would you know? But anyway, yeah, how would you know? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but supposedly it is. It Ooh. is ruthless, right? Um, oh, Scott, what's your what's your goal with your patients on fiber intake? Do you have a certain amount you're they're, you're shooting for, or if you're do you feel if they're eating whole food plant-based exclusively, it ain't a thing. Well, you know, for a number, I, I throw 50 out there. I, I throw a uh, big five Oh, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that's because, I mean, fiber is like the, you know, the missing nutrient, the, the, uh, you know, soluble fiber, uh, creating the uh, short chain fatty acids and getting mm. this anti-inflammatory effect. So, I, I throw that out there, but people don't come at me with, you know, how many grams of fiber should I, I eat? You know, people, I, I, I kind of ferret this out by asking them, are they having, you know, tell me about your bowel movements. And I love talking about bowel movements yeah. <laughs> is, are you having at least one huge bowel movement a day? Uh, and if not, um, how can, how can we up your numbers? How can we up your, and one of the unsung heroes is the whole grains and beans, of course, but, uh, you know, getting people to eat uh, whole grains, a prebiotic mix, you know, Dr. Gregor talks about his bowl bowl and yeah. he influenced me. 
he influenced me with this bro bowl thing. And I've been doing all sorts of basically oat groats is, is kind of my new passion is, is I ate oatmeal rolled oats for a long time. And now it's oat groats and it's way better. It's a, he said, you'll never go back. And it's true. It, it's yeah, really you're nutty up, and, yeah, you're yeah. up in your game. Cause you know, I, I've been a steel coat oats fan for a long time. And, um, I've been told by many people, go to the groats, the oat groats. It's like like the purest form of the oat. And then I was interviewing Dr. Gregor a couple months ago, and I asked him what he had for breakfast, and he said the oat groats, and uh, he's and then he got all excited about him. <laughs> <laughs> right, very excited. Yeah, yeah. Now tell me this, tell me this, Scott. So, <clears throat> what you said you you love talking about stools or poop? What? Uh, what should we be looking for in our bowel movements or not looking for? Um, you have any thoughts on that? Besides well, one, I mean, one big, yeah, just a, one massive dump a day, but <laughs> yeah, you want to be, you want to be having huge stools. Uh, you know, I gave a lecture, you know, the scoop on the poop and uh, oh. in, in, in the studies, basically the, People did better, had lower colon cancer rates, like the larger their stool was, basically how much stool mass they're putting out. Um, you're getting all this uh, prebiotic mix, all this uh, food for the colonic bacteria. And uh, what, what you should be looking for is basically you want to be having large bowel movements every day on the regular uh there's, there's the joke about the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath, Hippocrates says three stools a day, which is... That's, that would be awesome maybe, but you know, I, I'm more of a one a day kind of guy, uh, but, uh, large, massive stools is, is what you're looking for. And if you're for some reason becoming constipated, uh, you might be, and, and constipated in a vegan is, is, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like once every other day to me, that's practically constipated if you're vegan, uh, because there should be so much volume in bulk. That's and if, if, you're, if you're not getting that, you're not doing it right. That's an oxymoron, a constipated <laughs> vegan. <laughs> right. Uh, and um, I had, I had honestly, before before going vegan, I was, uh, I had pretty much lifelong constipation. Mm. And it's kind of an underrated aspect of, uh, of, of the vegan diet is, is normal, normal bowel movements. Well, um, yeah, not only normal, but I would say incredibly um, expeditious. I mean, you know, <laughs> I've got yeah. my 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 brother-in-law. He's like, I always take like a magazine or a book in with me, and then I'm like, after ten seconds, I'm like, why did I bring this in with me? It just makes no sense unless I just want to hang out in my own stink, right? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. You know, the, the joke is that you should be able to have Bauman before you can, you know, uh, finish your pee for, for a man, I guess, you know, it's like, right. <laughs> like that's so, uh, but one of the things that's interesting about this is the, the, the stool kind of burden or whatever that uh, is different in vegans is that what's very common is when I see my patients who maybe they've gone to the urgent care or, you know, maybe they've had a CT scan for some reason the radiologist always said comments. They're like, this patient is full of stool, you know, full of stool, full of stool. That's it. So if any of your readers here or listeners hear that full of stool, um, it's not that you're constipated. Normally the radiologist would assume that the patient's constipated because mm. they haven't evacuated their bowels, but uh, they just not doing it right. You know, a vegan should be, have their 
have so much stool in, in them that they see it and they, they think it's like a problem because they don't see it very often. They think it's a problem and they'll mention it on the, on the radiology report. Right, right, right. You said, so did Hippocrates really say three, three bowel movements a day or something like that? The reference for that is one of Dr. Greger's videos oh. about it. Uh, and so he's really, re he's really referenced up. So uh, he yeah. did mention it on one of his, uh, uh, one of his videos about like how frequently you should be having stools. And, and so I haven't seen the reference myself. However, uh, the, yeah. um, the definition of normal bowel frequency is uh, up three per day. Uh, down to once every three days, that's considered the normal U.S. bowel movement frequency. So uh, more than three per day just is kind of concerning a little bit for looser stool and diarrhea kind of thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, I'm a three, I'm a three bagger a day. And nice. Um, oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like I eat and then there's this gastro kind of intestinal response about 20 minutes later. And it's like, okay. Let's do this. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's been like that for 30, 40 years. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Scott, I'm going to ask you one more question. And there's so many other questions that I'd prefer to just have you back on the show and we can dive okay, in. Again. But um, what's your opinion on, on oils with your patients? Are you a fan or not a fan of, um, of, of oils? No, no, no. Oils, you want to get away from oils. Uh, don't get your fat from oil. You know, it's uh, all the fiber has been removed, all the nutrients been removed from the fat. Uh, in terms of calorie density, it's like uh, the worst possible thing you can do. It's, uh, you know, if you filled up your stomach with oil, it would be like seven or 8,000 calories or some kind of ridiculous number, right. you know. So uh, you want to avoid it every, uh, you know, you want, you know, foods that are dried and fried and have oil on it, they're going to, you know, their calories are going to like double and triple. So, yeah. And, um, I think there's a potential for oil also to be, um, uh, to be problematic. Honestly, I mean, obviously your dad mentions about the endothelium and, uh, flow mediated mm -hmm. dilation studies cut, you know, showing that problems with oil, uh, relationship to meals. And so, yes, no oil. Try to get get that oil out. Get that oil out and get your fat from whole foods like nuts and avocado and that kind of thing. Damn. Absolutely love it. Um, well, Scott, <clears throat> before I let you go, I need to find out um, what have you had already to eat today? We're, we're fascinated to know what you've had. Maybe you had the oat groats for breakfast. I had but, oat groats, yeah, oat groats with barley and uh, blueberries and strawberries with flax and a little bit of oat milk uh, for breakfast. And for lunch so far, I had uh, arugula. I had cooked arugula today. I just kind of nice. cooked it down. So it was like a big old thing of arugula. And then I ate leftovers uh, from from last night, which was a cranberry farro and cinnamon kind of like a kind of a holiday holiday oh, yeah. mix yeah with uh delicata cut delicata squash uh so it was it was great i uh, <laughs> i'm glad you asked glad you it asked sounds, it, felt, it felt like a pro meal for sure it, it sounds great and who does the cooking is it you your wife kids 
my wife, Jennifer, my wife, Jennifer. But I do have to mention uh, my uh, sister and brother-in-law. My wife's an identical twin and her twin has moved two houses down from us. So we have wow. like this compound and we, and, and uh, she's vegan too. And we, we, um, we cook, we take turns cooking. So we're, we're in a great situation. Yeah. Wow. Uh, let us know when the house in between you two comes on the market. <laughs> so one of, uh, one of our lucky listeners can move in and um, <laughs> be the beneficiary of any leftovers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want, I wanted to mention something to you. Uh, uh, my mother-in-law asked me, you know, oh, Scott, is there, a, is there a book I can learn about the plant-based diet? And I talked about Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by your dad. And I told her about this. And, you know, I give out book recommendations. Well, she she got the book. She read the book. And then on the back or somewhere where it says, you know, your dad puts his number and she contacted him yeah. and he called her back. He called her back. And he gave her, you know, you know, good info and, uh, and she's vegan now too. And, uh, so your dad did what I couldn't do. I mean, she, she was, she was into it. She was listening, but like she became solidified when, uh, Caldwell Esselstyn called her up and, uh, she said, well, you know, can I, you know, cinch out sometimes or can I cheat? And he's like, no, don't cheat. You've got to do it. You've got to go all the way. Or he's he like, really well, why, why, why would you want to injure your endothelial cells? He just doesn't get it, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Right, right. Uh, very black and white for him like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Scott, it is his 90th birthday today. Oh, my God. Now, obviously, this is going to air a little bit later, but today is his 90th birthday. So, so happy and, and, and proud of that guy. Oh, man, Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just yeah. feel so lucky to be, uh, you know, here on the show. Uh, you know, I, I want people to know about vegan primary care and that I can serve them as the, you know, uh, in yeah. 22 States. And, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be really helpful getting out to your, to your listeners. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott, thanks for your contributions. Thanks for your passion for, uh, all things vegan even started a business, vegan primary care. Man, you went for it. Love it. All right, Scott, until next time. Awesome. Keep it plant strong. And can you give me a virtual fist bump on the way out? Virtual fist bump. Bam. Yeah. Bam. Wow. <laughs> to learn more about Dr. Harrington and the states that he serves, go to veganprimarycare.com. Dr. Harrington. I want to thank you so much for your service to our country and your service to the health of your patients. Now, before we head out today, I want to play a little testimonial that I got from a listener that I think all of you may enjoy. Here you go. Eight years ago, I had been going to see my doctor and every time she saw me, she would tell me that my cholesterol was too high and that if she didn't see me lower it, I would, uh, she'd be putting me on cholesterol drugs. Well, I didn't want to do that, and that happened a couple of times. And then finally, I happened to be going to see a speaker who uh, was going to talk about his plant strong rescue diet, which was obviously Rip Esselstyn. So I went to go see him speak. I had no idea that it was a vegan thing. And, uh, you know, at first I was like, man, I don't know. And then after I listened to him, it was fabulous. I not only bought his book, 
but I didn't just follow it for the seven days. I followed it for six weeks. When I went back to the doctor and she saw that my cholesterol had gone from 237 to 160, she said to me, what did you do? She just was shocked that it had gone down so much. And I told her um, about my experience. Didn't seem to sway her very much. But after that, I've been plant strong for eight years. I'm still moving on with it. I enjoy it very much. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity to hear Rip speak and talk about this great um, lifestyle change. Thank you. Marion, thank you for coming to see me all of those years ago. You epitomize why I, for all those years, a decade, I traveled from state to state sharing the good news about plants. Huge, huge congratulations on staying the course and being the proof, even for our own healthcare providers, that optimum health can be achieved with simple changes at the end of your fork. Thanks, everybody, as always, for keeping it plan strong, and I'll see you next week. The Plan Strong podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, and Amy Mackey. If you like what you hear, do us a favor and share the show with your friends and loved ones. You can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're there, make sure to hit that follow button so that you never miss an episode. As always, this and every episode is dedicated to my parents, Dr. Cobble B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>